Welcome to the Jack Jones and Martin Warner Show. I'm very excited to speak to our guest today. It's the critically acclaimed film director and documentarian, Reggie Yates. Someone that I would actually describe as a polymath, to be honest with you, because this man goes from radio to the CBBC to hosting one of the sickest parties in London at the time. I remember it was a talk of the town trading places many, many years ago. And then now on the making films and talking to homophobic neo-Nazis in Russia. I mean, it's amazing. How you doing, brother? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thankfully, um, I'm doing just one thing now, which is good. Um, I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible. And um, I've picked the most complicated lane in the world, which is actually writing and directing. But I'm loving it. I mean, it's, um, it's a real pleasure to be able to be given the opportunity to not just write a film, but write a film about something that I care about direct it and see it coming out you know it's a it's a real pleasure i mean after 30 years in the spotlight essentially because you started out on the desmonds right i think what like eight years old yeah it's crazy i mean and then your journey is super inspiring as you said now you're at a place where you're directing we're going to be talking about your film pirates which i checked out the trailer you guys should check it out it's i mean it's got all the things that i love about it feels like a love letter basically to our youth uh, I'll let you illuminate on that more. But like, with all this diversity, your skill set, what's the secret, man, for you? Like, what is driving you to try all this stuff? You know, I don't think it's massively complicated. It's just um, I'm the sort of person that over the years has been really driven by my passions. And um, I've only ever done things that I really care about. And in those moments where the care for whatever it is that I'm doing starts to go through the floor, I pivot and I try something new. And it's because of that that... Um, I think I've had a career that has lasted three decades, you know. I'm really interested in working with new talent. I'm really also interested in testing myself. And um, I feel as though I'm at my best when I'm learning. So, uh, yeah, to keep learning and to keep pushing myself has really been at the core of all of my decision making, which is why over the years I've done so many different things. Is that ingrained in you or some way or you've learned to become like that? I think it's just how I've been. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe for, for to my own detriment, like the minute I get comfortable, I'm like, ah, it's time to move on. Um, because there's been points where um, I've been doing something that, you know, it's, it's good. It has a good visibility. I'm earning well out of it, but I've not really felt fulfilled. And the thing that if, if ever I was chasing anything, it's fulfillment. And that for me is uh, as close to personal happiness as possible and being happy with what I do every day is a really big thing for me because I grew up around people that didn't enjoy work you know I grew up around people that didn't love what they do you know my my, uh, my grandmother didn't love working the buses my grandfather didn't love being a, a mathematics professor by night and a security guard by day like he didn't I had people around me that were doing really difficult things because they had to pay bills. And I, I, I just feel incredibly privileged that I get to pay my bills doing what I love. So yeah, to, to keep that energy and to keep that focus, I think you can only really do that by uh, being invested in something that you care about. I love that. And I love that you framed it as paying the bills by doing something you love, which kind of gets, it's a headline that you see a lot nowadays. And I see loads of people trying to aspire to that but it, it takes a bit of it takes that kind of focus and uh kind of an attraction to your own authenticity to get it and even speaking from my own experiences like growing up my parents were both teachers and 
I'm from a multi-ethnic background. My stepdad's Nigerian and my mum was Chinese. So you can imagine the conversations I was having by going into music. Um, it was very tricky. From what I remember, you're born in North London. Uh, your parents are from Ghana. So was it tricky with all the cultural elements for you to chase a career like this, to have that conversation, to say, I want to pay the bills doing what I love. I have this talent. Shouldn't you become a lawyer? Shouldn't you become a teacher or something more solid, Reg? Yeah, I mean, given their, given their background and their understanding of what success looked like, there weren't any examples of people making it in media. Um, therefore, my parents, for the right reasons, you know, only wanted the best for me, didn't think that uh, me making a career out of something uh, creative was the right way to go. And it's hilarious because, ironically, they're the reason that I started doing what I do. You know, they put me, my mother put me in a community drama group, which ultimately led to me getting work and getting, um, uh, expressing myself through drama and through, you know, improvisation and then actually going on to to get to get cast in, in, in TV shows. So who took you to that casting? Um, uh, my, my you, first, were eight. you ain't rolling up on yeah, your own. Yeah, so my first cast in for Desmond's, I went with my mum, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So she, yeah. she was into the idea of you getting on telly. Yeah, but I think that that's very different when you're a kid and you're doing bits and pieces versus getting to the age of 18 and saying, I want to drop out of art school and I want to do this full time. Um, uh, you know, the, the background that I'm from, it's almost, it was almost as if just getting a degree was the most important thing. It almost didn't matter what you got the degree in. It was just get a degree because it gives you a great chance of success. And um, yeah, in theory, that's true. But uh, in the world that we live in today, you can do just as well creatively. And this isn't me by any means telling people listening to this to not get a degree. I think that it's an incredible thing to get an education. But there is also other ways to find success today, particularly if you are interested in the arts and I've always sort of said, you know, it's hilarious. I'm, 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 I've directed a, a movie, but at no point has anybody asked me, can I see your degree to direct this? Can I, can I see your qualifications, you know? And um, that's because ultimately it's about what you bring to the table as a creative, as opposed to what piece of paper says that you're qualified or not. I think we should tie that back then into what you said earlier about nurturing new talent. And I know you speak a lot about mentors and I'd like to touch on that too, but if there was someone listening now and because I get this a lot as well, where you want to go into creative fields and people feel like they need to get a qualification or they feel like um, that traditional route is the only way or maybe they don't have the right connections or whatever it is. And do you feel like, you know, how would you if someone was speaking to you now, what would you say to them about? formal education in the arts? Yeah, well, there is no right or wrong way. I think that a formal education has massive, massive benefits and I would never discourage anyone from going to film school or going to, you know, some sort of creative arts place. Like I would never discourage anyone from doing that. But at the same time, um, having practical knowledge or having practical experience is almost just as valuable. You know, there's so many people that I've worked with that have been on sets uh, in the camera department from the age of 16 or 17 and now they run a camera department without having gone to you know uh, get themselves a higher education at film school um, but at the same time uh, I remember being on my first short film not knowing anything about camera lenses and being talked through it by my DOP because I never went to film school I'd never made anything before so there are pros and cons and there's no right way or wrong way I think the beautiful thing about the arts is that the most successful people double down on their uniqueness and their authenticity, which also extends to what works for you is what you should follow. You know, some people need 
uh, a guided light and some people uh, need to experiment on their own terms. There is no right You make way. what you want to see, almost. If you feel, and that's how you stay authentic, you make something that you would like to see in the world yourself. And then you just get it done by any means necessary. Then there's still the artistic vision is you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, like I said, there's no right way or wrong way. And I think the thing that's neglected a lot of time, particularly when it comes to film, is that it's a collaborative process. You know, you're working as a team and you have to be a part of a team. Like you can't create and finish something as big as a film thinking that you can do everything, especially when you're new to it. Like me, um, I needed to be led. I need people that are smarter than me around me. I need experts in different areas to guide me and being willing to learn is the reason that I love this um, this element of my career so much because I'm learning something new every day on set. I'm learning something new every day in rehearsals, even something as simple as rehearsing with my actors. I'm suddenly getting flashbacks of being an actor myself and being in rehearsals and sort of thinking about what I would have loved to do with my director at the time. And that is helping. And, and, and also I learned a lot from making shorts in that sort of coming to the table with a my way or the highway attitude isn't the best way to get stuff out of actors. And uh, being on set on a feature film, you learn very quickly that there's different ways to go about things, you know? I want to ask you how important mentors are for you in your career. Massive. Uh, yeah, mentors are the whole reason that I'm talking to you today. Uh, my first ever mentor was a lady called Anna Sher. Uh, she ran the community drama group that I started out at when I was a kid. And uh, it was more than just going to a lesson and learning how to be a performer. It was more about um, being a good person and putting into your art who you are as an individual. I found her incredibly influential in terms of everything uh, that I wanted to be as a creative and, you know, I wrote my first book and dedicated to her because um, I wouldn't have the career and the opportunities that I have if this lady didn't decide to invest in little local kids from my area. So um, Anna was incredibly influential to me. And there's been so many other people uh, after Anna who have been uh, a massive, massive influence on me moving forward, both as a professional and as a man which is why I invest in young people now myself. Um, I started a platform called Pastor Mike, which is ultimately about mentorship, but also about um, practical advice and finding people work, you know, helping people find careers. That's been a huge thing for me, um, ensuring that I pay it forward because so many people have been a part of my journey that I have to pay it forward. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's karmically bad. It's a bad decision in terms of karma to not help others, I feel. How do you, this is a legit question because when I was growing up and looking for guidance, I would legit write into the internet, how do you find a mentor? Because it, it again, it gets spoken about a lot and I'm lucky to have Martin who's one of my mentors and we're doing this podcast together and we talk about a lot of stuff, everything from, uh, you know, life advice, tax advice, marriage advice, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, how, how have those relationships manifested for you? Like, how do they start in your experience? Uh, always organically um, and always from uh, quite a natural place, be it working with someone and recognising that they have the perspective uh, that I would love to know more about and learn from or um, seeing somebody who I admire and finding an intermediary to connect me with that person. And I've never really wanted to or I've never wanted to engage with on a mentorship level or reached out to someone who I didn't admire, um, both as a human being in terms of what I found out about them, as well as what they've achieved professionally. 
I'm not interested in uh, being around someone incredibly successful who's a prick. So Oh, I've seen a few of those. I feel the same way, man. It's almost like puts you off. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and there, there, there is a lot of that. Um, success doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with being a good person. Um, and I've made an effort to try and identify people who are both uh, inspirational, successful and good human beings, ultimately, because um, I figure if your worldview is aligned with mine, then we've got a good chance of getting on and there's a good chance that your advice might actually be helpful to me. I think mentoring's a... Everyone thinks it's deeply personal, um, but but when you come back to it, it's the things that Reg is saying that they're, they're all common about all of us, right? So when we look for someone, you're having the same expectations is really really important. Having someone you can respect or admire both ways is really really important, right? So if someone says I'm going to give you a couple of hours a month or a couple of hours a week, um, and he breaks that or she breaks that. Then the, you know the respect's gone. If you, if if there's no fair value, so so one of the tricky things with mentoring is the person that's mentoring has to get something out of it because it's only human. It's like any relationship. Now getting out of it may be the fact that they're enabling or empowering someone. Um, so it's just it, there, there's just these mutual things that are really really obvious that make successful mentoring work. Like what what Reggie. Well, we're saying. talking about it because Reggie's runs a. A program called Pastor Mike, where he's a mentor, yeah. mentoring like young people coming into. Is it specifically um, film or radio? What what is always all aspects of the entertainment industry in terms it's, of media? It's just about um, essentially about young creative people. Period. Um, and we focus on different things depending on what the focus might be that week or that month. And we align with different brands and different companies and do everything from. Uh, work placements to grants and and, uh, um, and just broad advice, sharing advice uh, as well. So it's about being creative as opposed to any one particular lane or part of the industry. Did you ever feel like when you were coming in to certain institutions or into the creative industries, did you ever, for me personally, I ever some, at times felt lonely because I didn't hear me other people that spoke like me or look like me and those kind of aspects did it ever at times feel like peerless it's quite a difficult one to answer because in a lot of ways yes but in a lot of ways no because uh, I started in television at the age of eight and I was so young I didn't I recognized but there but there were um real strange abnormalities about the way in which I was working, being the only person of color on a set of 50 people, 100 people. But I didn't really understand how that could or might uh, actually affect me as a, a young performer. And to be honest with you, I didn't allow it to affect me. I was just aware of it. Um, and moving forward, uh, for me, it's been uh, this whole idea of being peerless, I think is a uh, it's quite a personal thing. And by that, I mean, it can be self-inflicted in a lot of ways because I have fought to be authentic to my true self. Uh, and because of that, I found myself a lane that nobody else can occupy, um, which ultimately means that there is no way I'm gonna be able to find a peer who is experiencing exactly the same things. So mm -hmm. I look for people that have a similar worldview or I look for, look for people who are experiencing similar things not necessarily the same and it's because of that i'm able to find peers i love that so you're you, it's almost like you you don't pigeonhole yourself in any way depending on your upbringing or your bias you kind of look for things on more of a human level on a worldview and does that 
did that influence the way you approach your documentaries where you're taking your your energy and meeting people around the world that have come from different walks of life come, don't laugh at your jokes the same because they perhaps don't even understand that sense of humor i, I mean we're now being a londoner going to different parts of the world like like for example on a light on a light anecdotal one when you go to america in some states it's cute when you bring out your londonisms it's like oh it's cute but then a lot of places they just don't understand what you're going on about even though we're speaking the same language was is that the energy you bring when you're meeting people through the documentaries yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I think the only reason that my career has lasted over three decades is because I've doubled down on who makes on, on what makes me me. Um, my uniqueness and my uh, my individuality is the cornerstone of everything that I do. So a film like Pirates, for instance, it's got my fingerprints all over it because I know myself well enough to know what parts of me to bring to the table, but I'm also very aware that I can't just tell a completely insular story. Therefore, there has to be human elements that anybody can plug into. Pirates speaks to the specificities of the world in which I grew up in, but at the same time, it's human enough that some kid in Bridlington who's never even heard a UK garage record can see himself in the lead actors because he's a teenager too, and he's fallen out with his friends. And one of his friends has got that clubhouse on wheels in the first car that anybody in their circle of pals has actually got, you know? So documentaries was, uh, making documentaries was an incredibly um, educational uh, process in terms of learning how to tell stories and also finding how to tell a story that is incredibly unique uh, and make it universal and also deliver some of the more difficult elements of that story in a way that is ultimately human so everybody can be invested and understand it yeah i mean it's a far cry from cbbc and radio one what, what in terms of making that leap was that daunting not really because it was gradual um every element of my career has been a, a gradual development you know um i started at radio one when i was 18 you know that's a long time ago that's 20 years ago um, I was making short, I've been making short films and films for 10, 15 years. I started out as an actor 30 years ago. So I've been on film sets, reading scripts, working with directors for three decades. So everything has been gradual. There is nothing about my stupid, silly face that is overnight. You know, everything <laughs> about my, my life and my career has been gradual. I've, I've, I've received lessons uh, over time. And because of that, I've taken my time to actually invest those lessons in the work that I create and the work that I share and make. Mm -hmm. I'm interested, given you've, you've kind of hopped so many projects and developed a lot of experience, what's your process for evaluating what you should do? Like, because you can, over the time, it looks like you've had a flurry of things that you've just taken because they want you, um, and yet it's been pretty diverse. So I'm interested in knowing that, that is, there, is there a process that's common about the way you select your projects in any of the fields that you've worked in? Yeah, it's um, very much the, the polar opposite of people wanting me. It's always been about what I want to do and okay. collaborate with people that want the same things. To begin with, I was very much being led, whereas at some point I decided that I was ready to actually lead. And the minute I was ready to lead, I led with authenticity and led with the things that matter to me. And the minute that that was at the core of the work that I was doing, people responded. I started to win awards. I started to have more doors open in front of me. And I started mm -hmm. to move away from the things that traditionally were the route to success and started to be very much involved in things that were counter that. Um, to begin with, um, my, my, my career as a documentary filmmaker, 
I was convinced that I wasn't right for that role and that I wouldn't have a career because there was no one else that looked like me that was doing it, especially no one else that was from where I was from that had the, has the accent that I have, has the references that I make. Um, there was no young person, let alone young black man, making documentaries for the BBC. And the minute I was told to double down on that and I was told that that is the reason that I will not only stand out but resonate with new audiences, um, I recognised that my individuality was the corner cornerstone of actually having some level of longevity and success in it and putting that into every element of my career is why I feel as though I've been able to meet people um, on an equal footing when it comes to creative conversations because nobody knows me like me and and <laughs> I am going to be able to do things that other people can't because they're unique to me not because I'm better or I'm smarter but because I just know myself and I know how I'll navigate a topic. And what do you enjoy most uh, you, in, in all the projects you're doing? Like what, what is, is it being in film? Is it the process of a documentary? Is it TV? Is it you know radio? Because some people just love to work in different disciplines, and I'm one of them, by the way. Many, many disciplines, and I like the variation. And of course, I've got some favourites, uh, you know, but. But nonetheless, I, you know, I couldn't live in, in I, I, you know, I'm in a multi-hyphenate. I couldn't live in one world. I wondered if you had a favourite and, and, and whether that influences what you're going to seek out in the future. Uh, yeah, uh, film. Film is the favourite. And all the things that I've done, I'm no longer doing. You know, I'm not on radio. I don't have a podcast. I'm not, I'm not doing 50 different things anymore. Now I write and I direct and that's it. And the reason that I love that and that I feel that that's me for the foreseeable is because it encompasses all these different skills that I've picked up over the years. It's weird, like, you know, you speak about being a multi-hyphenate, being a filmmaker, mm -hmm. you are essentially doing one thing, but you are pulling from all of these different parts of your sure. past and your history and your creativity. I, I, I'm dealing with music, I'm dealing with photography, I, I'm dealing with writing, I'm dealing with storytelling. All of these elements come into being a director. So. I'm very much focused on one lane, but I'm definitely pulling from several. I wanted to ask you at this point about formats, because obviously you made the documentaries on the BBC, um, obviously, and then you had it on BBC Three. Um, and film now is moving in so many different directions. If you were to make a documentary now, or do it, would you keep it traditionally on co like terrestrial TV, or would you look at other things like YouTube, where things like BBC perhaps feel like old brass, do you know what I mean? Or even film, uh, is there a way you're thinking about putting your films out that perhaps feel a bit more progressive? For me, the, the, the landscape of platforms today are more interesting and exciting than they've ever been, because it has opened things up in a lot of ways, you know? Um, being able to create something and put it on YouTube and find the global audience wasn't available to me when I was starting out. You know, um, uh, is that affecting the way in which I come to the table as a creator? No, because is it good or not? That's the question that I ask myself. I don't start an idea thinking where I'm going to sell it or where it's going to live. To begin with, it starts with what do you want actually want to say? Why do you want to mm -hmm. say this and why now? And then you build from there. And once you get to the end of creating this thing, it comes it becomes fairly obvious where it should sit you know if you make something that's 10 minutes and it's quite quick it probably makes sense to take that to youtube whereas if you know you've got something that you want to tell 
a story that you want to tell over 10 hours, it's probably better to go global with it and, and talk to Netflix or Amazon. So it always begins with story and it ends with script. And once you've got something really strong, it becomes very obvious about where you should be taking that idea, I feel. Do you think that I've got a quote here where you say about empathy and learning being at the heart of what you do? Is it hard to not have an opinion or a judgment on them whilst you're making that documentary, whilst you're talking to them? Yeah, I mean, I had to learn that the hard way, bro. I can't be honest with you. Um, I made documentaries where I was talking to people whose guts I could not stand and I would cut the interview short and leave because I despised the person that I was talking to. And it wasn't until I had a really good conversation with my director, Sam, who's a very close friend of mine, and he directed a lot of my documentaries. And Sam was like, bro, this isn't about you. This person has some incredibly difficult and complicated ideals and we're not getting to them because you're taking it personally. And it was the minute that I recognized that, you know, if you are fully invested in the why behind someone's behavior, you then get into some very interesting territory. And that is uh, a lesson that has made me a better storyteller in the dramatic space, because it's very easy to write a bad guy. It's very easy to write somebody who does horrible things, but it's when you get into the whys and when you get into the reasons and the motivations behind that belief system that you actually get into stuff that appeals to everyone on a human level and the best position you can be in is having your audience identifying with the bad guy because you understand and empathize with their point of view. So uh, empathy has been a huge, huge learning uh, curve for me when it comes to being a better storyteller. I remember watching... Uh your doc your doc where you went into was it an arizona state prison uh texas i i, I was an inmate in texas in bexar i believe <sighs> i did not envy me it looked like pressure i can't lie to you um i ring fenced that as a an area that's completely off limits when we started making immersive films i said to my producers I am never making a film in a jail. You're not putting me in a jail. You're not putting me in a jail. <laughs> and the reason, right. the reason for that was, you know, apart from the obvious, um, the reason for that was I've done everything in my power to never know what it feels like to go behind the door. So I'm not going to do that for your t silly television program. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. when I actually got to that idea of empathy and when that became at the center of my thinking when it came to, to documentaries and storytelling, I realized it's not about me. Um, and by making that documentary, I might have prevented 15 year old me from thinking that jail was cool. I might have prevented um, certain people who I'll never meet walking a path that um, I thankfully circumvented. And the minute it wasn't about me, making that film made sense which is why I then did a follow-up film where I was actually a uh, correctional officer as well as off the back of being an inmate. And it was just another element of understanding the criminal justice system, but also preventative, I hope, for a lot of young people in terms of what they might put themselves in the middle of, you know? If you were to make another documentary, is there something on your radar that you're like, do you know what, this is fucked up. I want to make a documentary about that. <laughs> Uh, no, is the honest truth. <laughs> yeah, nah. Every idea that I have, I put through the creative filter of drama. Um, and there is nothing that I'm looking at at the minute. There's no story that I read and I think, oh, this will make a fascinating documentary. I think this will make a fascinating drama. If there is anything that is undeniably great 
for the documentary space, I think about who else could potentially front it. And if I want to invest the energy in producing it through my company. But to be honest with you, at this point, um, I'm not particularly interested in fronting any documentaries, but producing them for other people is, is something that I'd be maybe interested in. Did you produce this film, Pirates? I did, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm a writer, director, producer on it. It's about three kids who drive from North London to South London on New Year's Eve 1999 in a yellow Peugeot 205 in an attempt to get into Twice As Nice, which is the biggest club it night was. at night. And because it is 1999, the entire backdrop is UK garage music. So these boys make up a small crew that are on a pirate radio station called Freak FM, and they're desperate to get into this big club night. And that's essentially the long and short of it. It's a movie that takes place over one day. And because of that, I have these really beautiful performances from these three young actors who are doing an incredible job of taking us back to a very special time in my formative years. Is it that you like the idea of uh, you being able to create a piece of entertainment or you still want to try and inform people through the lens of, of film? Is there anything that you're trying to get out of film that perhaps your other... Your, your, your other um, your past hasn't been able to deliver. Um, well, with every project, there's always going to be a message at the centre of it. And even though this is a fun comedy, it's a coming-of-age comedy, um, there is, at its core, uh, a message. And the really beautiful thing about it is that people are taking in that message without even really realising. Um, mm -hmm. There is a really gorgeous, but at the same time, heartbreaking fact about Pirates, and that is this is the first time that there has been a widely released uh, comedy with three black leads that I was gonna say about some sort of existential crisis. It doesn't have a knife or a gun in it. There is no gang involvement. There is none of that. This is a film about young people existing that happen to be black, as opposed to their race being at the center of the story. Yeah. That in itself is a message. That in itself is an anomaly, unfortunately. And because of that, there is something really beautiful about this getting a wide release because there are people in different corners of the UK that don't have young black friends and up until this point have only seen one version of the black British experience and that is drugs, gangs and all the aforementioned. Whereas in reality, if you're like me, you may have grown up around that. That may have been something on your radar, but it never defined you and you weren't sucked into it, which is why the message of this film is essentially joy and that in itself is a huge message because we've never bloody seen it before and i'm really proud of the fact that you can have a film that doesn't need to be about some sort of horrible harrowing social issue just because it's leads of people of color and this film thankfully is about joy it's about friendship and it's about ultimately being young which at its core is a human story and allows everybody to come to the cinema and enjoy, and enjoy it because they can see themselves in these leads. But beyond that, there is also the anomaly of it that makes it a film that has a really beautiful message in a lot of ways. When you go to watch it, do you think the audience will understand that that's what um, is being said? I, uh, I would never um, guess what people are going to take from this. But what I, what I am sure about is what I'm intending to do. And that is that um, I'm intending to put in front of people something that is fun, something that is pure and something that is joyous. And there is an assumption on my part that the experience that I've had when it comes to speaking about the issues, when it comes to representation in film, will be discussed by people that are from a similar background or a similar community to me. And ideally people that aren't, 
will just enjoy the film because it is an enjoyable film full stop and if that is achieved then the message that i'm trying to share will have been translated it would have been relayed it would have been translated it would have been delivered because ultimately you want people to just see a human story and by people i mean the wider audience you want them to see a human story that they can identify with coming of age being young falling in love trying to get to the party trying to have fun being out with your friends new year's eve in 1999 these are all things that anybody can plug into and enjoy and there are so many other layers to what is being presented depending on what your background is there are people out there that have never heard of probito but there is a definite group of people that will see probito on screen and scream out loud and i've heard them do that in screenings that we've done what's probito so probito is a store in the movie that the boys go to to steal designer Italian clothes. See, if you grew up in London in the nineties. You. I grew up in London in the nineties. Where's Probito? Okay, so well, clearly, <laughs> clearly, I wasn't great. Up, I didn't have the garments. Clearly, clearly you weren't a garments man. No, um, like in in London, there was a shop called Probito in Soho, and Madhouse is where you'd get all the diffusion stuff if you couldn't afford to buy a proper designer gear. Madhouse was on Oxford Street. I think you might be a bit younger than me, so this is probably why. This was a you were like the sixth form guy, and I was in year seven, man. That's like, probably why. That's yeah, because for me it was Browns, and I'm looking at here. I mean, fashion is a big part of this, like the Averix jackets and this whole era naf naf imports and the, the naf, clothing naf. at that time these are things that were i couldn't i couldn't afford at the time bro yeah but again <laughs> if you're of a certain age or you were there then you'd get it there might be certain things that would chime with people that maybe have been a bit too young but some of the details some of the more granular there's so many easter eggs and granular like even on the walls the bedroom walls of one of the lead characters there's like posters of charlie brown charlie brown and Charlie Brown was one of the first big garage MCs who passed away recently. And it's only people that will know that will go, oh my God, that's Charlie Brown. Or in the record shop, when you look behind the girl who's working at the counter, there, aren't, there are some real records, but there's also messages. There's like major race, rest, right. in, rest in peace, and all these different things that are written on white label sleeves behind this girl that if you look, you'll see them and you'll go, oh my God, okay, this film was made by people that are of the culture and that know and that get mm -hmm. it. Or even... You know, what the extra in the scene is Ronnie Harrell. Ronnie Harrell used to run Uptown Records and we've recreated Uptown Records that is now defunct. But the real Ronnie Harrell who used to manage Uptown is in the scene. So there are a crazy amount of Easter eggs if you're willing to look for them and if you know. Have you got any uh, legendary um, MCs that transition from Garage into Grime, et cetera, et cetera, making appearances in the film? Yeah, a bunch. There's a few. I don't want to ruin it, but let's just say ah! there's, a few, there's a good few. There's a few legends from House and Garage, but there's also some actual legends who left Garage and transitioned into other music. So there's like a lot of people. You just got to look, but more than anything, just enjoy it. That's what I want people to do. I just want people to enjoy it. Can you tell us about the leads? Because I think it's important in these kind of stories that as well as the fact you're breaking away from the stereotype of a black story on screen from not being involved with any gangs nothing like that but also i think the characters their qualities their ideas need to feel unique as well do you know what I mean because again you see a lot of stereotypes can you tell us about the leads and how, how they interplay with each other yeah um we've got three really brilliant young actors leading the film so you've got uh, elliot dusar reddit alazor and jordan peters and these are young men who are gonna go on to have massive careers, in my humble opinion. They've already started yeah. to book some really exciting other work. 
And just seeing them go from strength to strength is beautiful. But in terms of the characters that they play, you know, you've got the the straight man, you've got the young guy who wants to uh, go back to university and step away from being the manager of this little garage crew. You've got the MC who is obsessed with not just women, but also music and also believes that they're going to be the biggest thing ever. Like there's a scene in the movie where they talk about um, pay you go and so solid getting record deals and they're like we're going to blow up before them lot don't even worry about it it's like he's obsessed with this idea that they're actually going to make it um, and then you've got the other kid who's just down for the ride he's just happy to be one of the boys and he just wants to have fun with his friends and those three characters are an amalgamation of all the different people I grew up with over the years because some of my friends started out in exactly the same place of me and but they wanted to go the academic route and then there were other friends who just wanted to party and be around women and wear the right clothes and be the top boy forever you know and then there were other people who just wanted to have fun didn't care about school didn't care about anything they just wanted to be one of the boys and I just felt that it was really a, a unique opportunity to have all of those characters um in share the screen together in one movie you know there's a um, a film with John Byenga uh, that took on a cult status in America. I think it was Attack the Block. And um, it's it's a horror film. For anyone who's not watching, it's a horror film. Well, a comedy horror set in an estate in London. And similarly, because the character is not what you're used to expecting, it's a true, it's a good story, similar to what you're trying to achieve in that sense. It it worked in America. And I think that's the thing. It's like you Americans, they don't want to see a repackaging of characters they've seen over there, but the English version, it's better that you show them something fresh and they see our coming of age and then it's exotic. It's, it's cool. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I actually had lunch with Joe Cornish. who wrote and directed attack the block uh, a couple of weeks ago. And Joe Cornish is one of those people that um, my team put me with because I'm desperate to, to, get help and advice and guidance from people who have done what I've done before because mm. I don't know it all. I know very little when it comes to being a filmmaker. This is my first movie. So I am trying to access as much information as I can from people who know so much more than me. And Joe Cornish was one of those people. And we spoke quite a bit actually when we met up about Attack the Block and you know they're making a sequel now. And Joe's experience with that film in the US was an incredible ride. and. He spoke to the point that you've just made, you know, the reason that that film really worked was because it was something that was, um, through his eyes, uh, authentic in its Britishness. And uh, my version of that is different. You know, I wouldn't write a movie like Attack the Block in the way that he did because we're very different people. But it was a version of Britishness that American audiences hadn't seen. And I think people can feel authenticity. They can sniff out fake. They can sniff out when somebody's trying to do something, which is why you could argue that UK rap traditionally never really worked in America. It mm. took grime and then drill. And then the new version of UK rap fronted by people like Central C and people like Getz and Gigs to actually work with American audiences and people like Skeppy to actually take it to them and go, no, 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 this is what it sounds like when we're not trying to be like you. This is what it sounds like when we're being ourselves. And I feel that film is similar in that way. You can feel when something comes from a real place. Yeah, totally. And I think, I mean, you're getting advice from, from people, which again, it just shows your approach about learning all the time. And, but you've just received a Biffa nomination for the best debut screenwriter. 
you know that must be first of all congratulations thank and you, thank great you. validation man thank you yeah i mean it's it's cool but it's interesting because I, I had a conversation earlier this morning about you know having a 30-year career and, and being uh, being at stage one 30 years in you is that exciting it's so exciting because I'm a, I'm a baby writer, I'm a baby director. I, I don't know the world and I'm learning it. But because I've got this 30 years prior, I don't get gassed. I'm not excited. Like I don't feel as though my world is about to suddenly change because I've got this nomination or I'm the greatest writer ever. I understand what it means in the greater scheme of things because I've been here before. When I was 18, I was nominated for a BAFTA for best presenter and I didn't win and I was heartbroken. And it was an amazing, it's an amazing thing to be able to go 20 years later, suddenly I'm being nominated for something new for the first time again. And I have all of those lessons and all of those things that I experienced way back then that just put things into perspective for me. Being nominated for awards is amazing, but it's not why I do what I do. I have messages that I, I want to share. I have ideas that I want to discuss. I have things that I want to say and being pat on the back for it is amazing but it's not the motivator. Do you, how do you deal with doubts being new, if you have any, um, the truth going is, on this new journey? I, 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 honestly, I don't have any, and that's not me trying to sound cool. Um, I do the work, I, I work, I graft, I write a lot, I ask for help. I have people read and tell me when things are rubbish. I don't, doubt doesn't really come into mind. Doubt for me is like having a plan B. I, it, there is no plan B. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I don't have imposter syndrome because I work too bloody hard. You can't. I love that. I'm not at any point going to question whether or not I should be doing what I'm doing because I'm researched, because I've done the work, and because I really am working my ass off. So I don't, I don't, I don't experience. I that, love that. No, that's lit. That's why I said if any. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm going to round this off uh, with. A super obvious question but because you're at the beginning of your journey i think it's fair yeah this is the the full plan we're making films can you tell us about the next thing come on g what's what's the um, next yeah, film you want to make i'll tell you a little bit about it so i've already written my next one and we're um, in the process of doing the deal on that now and that is something that shoots internationally it will be shot across three countries and it's really exciting how it's building and developing um and also you know little things like having a, an international cast is a really exciting part of it but at the core of the story, it's a, question, a story about identity. And the start point for me will always be the thing that determines whether or not I'm gonna have a hunger to keep telling the story and keep working on the thing for the year that it's gonna to take to make it and to execute. And you know, to go back to our previous point about doubt, I'm not gonna doubt myself at any point if I really believe at the heart of this story is something important that needs to be discussed. And so, the most I can tell you is that this next project is about identity. That's the most I can tell you at this point. We're well, super exciting, very, very keen to watch Pirates. Everyone go check that out. November 26th, national release. Um, our American friends are going to have to wait, but that will be coming. Did you give us a date, Reg? Uh, no, I didn't. That'll be soon. So, uh, yeah, we're working out the streaming deal for the UK and then the international streaming deal and the international release will be announced soon. So, yeah, watch this space beautiful can't wait man and i'm excited to see how how it unfolds man thank you so much reggie thank you for joining us man no problem thank you for having me appreciate it man